This is the Bad Hops Podcast, a baseball podcast where we discuss everything but the box score. So if you're looking for Ichiro's on-base percentage or Shohei Otani's barrel rate, this is not the place. But if you prefer the Nippon Ham Fighters to the Arizona Diamondbacks, welcome. We're your hosts. I'm Jackie Micucci. And I'm Mark Butler. And today we are taking the Shinkansen to Tokyo. Welcome to Bad Hops. I know you know what time it is. It's showtime. It is showtime and not just bad hop showtime. It's showtime in Major League Baseball because we're talking about Shohei Otani for like, I don't know, a minute today. Just a little bit. I just saw him pitch, by the way. Saw him pitch on Thursday. Oh, nice. How did he do? Uh, Did well. Well, you know, he's pitching against the Mariners, so it wasn't really a tough gig for him. But yeah, pitched well. I wouldn't say he pitched um, amazingly, but he did pitch well. We are excited about Shohei Otani, even though he does not represent any team that we're interested in personally, but he's just that exciting. We have been watching him since he came over from Japan, I guess about four or five years ago now, right? I think so. And he was a player that was mostly potential unrealized for the longest time. I think he had a lot of, I think his issue has been injuries though. Yeah, he came out of the gate, interestingly. I feel like he showed some power, maybe you know, a little bit of fire out of the arm. And then he got hurt. And I think he missed almost a whole season, maybe a whole season, due to injuries. But then in the 2021 season, holy crap, did anybody else play baseball in 2021? I think it was just <laughs> Shohei Otani versus nobody. He was putting up the video game numbers, tons of home runs, frosty pitching against opponents and just amazing to watch. We've never seen that in our lifetime. We've never seen a pitcher that can hit or a hitter that can pitch. There've been rumors that that's possible, but we've never really seen it. You would see a national league pitcher hit or home run. You're like, Oh yes, this is amazing. I can't believe that this guy got one home run for the whole season. And I, but I saw it. So I must be the lucky charm here. Go Bartolo Colon. <laughs> or Brandon Woodruff for the Brewers in the playoffs a couple of years ago, because that was pretty exciting to see yeah. the, the pitcher knock one out. But it just sure. doesn't happen. The last person that really could do both jobs super effectively was Babe Ruth, a pitcher that could hit, a hitter that could pitch. But even Babe Ruth, the famous star of the movie The Babe, starring John Goodman from 1992, because you know I'm not going to let that one go. You always have to have a mention of The Babe, no matter what we're talking about. If you give me a dead horse, I'm going to beat it. And it, if as long as it's a terrible movie, and yes, so here we are. But even Babe Ruth had to choose at some point. He mm-hmm. did stop pitching, and he focused on hitting. And at some point in Otani's career, we may see that happen too. But... It's cool to see someone that can do it all. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting now that we have a rule that benefits almost no one but him that allows a pitcher that is in the lineup as a DH to remain in the lineup as a DH even when he's no longer pitching. I know we talked about that in the What's New in 22 episode about the quote-unquote Otani rule, but it is the Otani rule. It is the Otani rule. We should call it the unicorn. They should call it the unicorn. 
role. Because I'm sure maybe in another hundred years, another Otani will come around or maybe the game will just be played by robots. I like, I like talking about robots. I like olden times. You like robots. And so the best part about this team up between you and me is it averages out to today. It does. You're in like the year 2350 and I'm in the year zero. That's right. I'm woman of the future. You're man of the past. I just like watching cavemen hit things with their clubs. And I like robots. And since we're talking about Japan, you know, I feel like Uncanny Valley is appropriate. We should probably get back on the topic of Japan because that is what we're talking about today. We are. We're we're going to Japan, one of our favorite uh, countries to visit. Who else are we going to talk about? What other Japanese player are we going to talk about? I know we've got, we're focusing on a great Japanese player in a few minutes. We're going to talk about an immortal Japanese player in in a few minutes, but I was also just going to say we are in an era where it is super exciting. Your team, your favorite team, the Yankees, and my favorite team, the Mariners, have both been graced with some of the greatest players to ever come from Japan. So we had Ichiro in Seattle for so many years. You had Ichiro for a little bit. We did. He actually was he was playing at then Safeco Field, and I think he got traded, and he just what, walked over to the other dugout to go play for the Yankees. Isn't that what happened? He just uh, meticulously drew pinstripes on his uniform. <laughs> Which he probably would be able to do. With those but yeah. fan- the fancy pens from a Japanese stationery store. That, I do that, love those that's pens. how I would have done it. It is exciting to see Japanese players come over here. There's always a buzz when it happens. We've seen enough players come over now that their batting average is not so fantastic. There's no guarantee that just being a big deal from Japan and coming over here is going to get you anywhere. Like, say a Suzuki is playing for the Cubs this year. He came out of the gate super strong. I don't even know where the guy is. He's on my fantasy baseball team. <laughs> he apparently broke a finger or strained a thumb muscle or something, and he's... He's been MIA for, for weeks at this point. Yeah, and he was hit by a pitch when he was warming up a pitcher a few weeks ago, and that was scary. Oh, geez. Kind of collapsed on the way to the dugout, So, but he's, he's okay. He's doing okay. I'm happy to hear that. I would love for my own personal benefit to see him come back and, and do some amazing things on the field, but only as a hitter and only as a fielder, because I don't think the dude can pitch. No, I don't think he can pitch. Okay. So yeah, the Yankees have been blessed with a, a number of good Japanese players, uh, Hideki Arabu aside. Hideki Matsui, however. Uh, Godzilla. Uh, Godzilla was a lot of fun to watch and was the last time we won the World Series in 2009. He was the MVP. He uh, he was a great player. I remember actually in very typical Japanese fashion, there was one season where he broke his wrist diving for a ball in the field and he apologized for getting injured which is not something you really see a lot of. You know where I happened to be when Matsui broke his wrist in New York? I was in Japan, and that was... big news. Yes, that was the lead story on the evening news. Not Japanese Sports Center, but literally the NHK News. They played sort of sad organ tones and healing bells and things like that, and I thought maybe he had died. Oh, But of course, going down on the field hard is like a soldier in battle. And so it was clearly grave news. But that's how big of a deal Japanese players playing in America are. We like to think that we know everything about baseball, and it's true. You're like 85%, and then I make up the, the rest with little fun facts about guys with twirly mustaches and stuff like that. But 
we are experts on this particular thing because we've actually done field work. We have both been to baseball games in Japan, and it's one of the greatest things ever. We're going to talk a little bit more about the Japanese baseball experience later in the episode, but we've been talking about Babe Ruth, and I think one of the best things about the Japanese baseball experience for me is that we have been to a stadium that Babe Ruth played at. Yes, we were. And there are only three stadiums in the world still standing that Babe Ruth played in. One was Wrigley Field in Chicago. One was Fenway Park in Boston. Not Yankee Stadium because they tore the one he played, the house that, that Ruth built. It's all it gone. But he played at the Meiji Jingu Stadium in Tokyo, which is the home of the Yakult Swallows. We're not just bragging that we once went on a trip and had a good time. And I'm sorry to everyone listening that we didn't send you a postcard. But we're going to see that a lot of things are going to kind of coalesce here. Meiji Jingu Stadium, the Yakult Swallows, famous Yankees. Yakult in general. This is one of those things where we're going to, this American life, this, we're going to tie it all together neatly with a bow. But before we start, Jackie, I'm going to give you a little quiz slash Japanese lesson. Okay, this is going to be fun. Well, it has to be fun. It's mandatory fun. It's mandatory fun. And it's just, I live with a person who studied Japanese. So you're putting me on the spot. That's one of my favorite things to do. So, so you know, Rachel will get on us. If, if either one of us butcher these words, you'll, we will hear it later. I can close the lid on the computer. I don't, if she wants to get into it with me. She knows where to find you. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) And now now I'm kind of scared of her. This is incumbent on how you do in the quiz. I'm I'm just the quiz. I'm just reading stuff off a piece of paper. It's it's how you respond is the secret. We want to be an informative podcast, right? So everyone at home can follow along. You can also say the word. And if you can define it, so much the better. I'm going to say a word, and you'll repeat it. So that's easy, right? Arigato. Arigato. That's very good. That means thank you. Ohio gozaimasu. Ohio gozaimasu. And that means hello or good day. It's just a friendly greeting. Actually, if you ever enter any type of, uh, even in the States, many times if you enter a Japanese market, you will hear that when you yes. walk through the door. Repeatedly. Which is lovely. Yes. The third one. Ajay Otori. Ajay Otori. Ajay Otori, very good. That means to look worse after a haircut. <laughs> you're looking at my haircut right now, and I know what you're thinking. Yeah, Ajay Otori, indeed. That's one of the things I love about the Japanese language. There's all sorts of weird little phrases. I think we've all been there. We've all had the haircut of regret in the past. Some, some of us just get more of them than others. So true. Now, you've done really well. I'm going to give you one more word, but this is for the master class. This is really advanced oh. stuff. Okay. So I want to see if you can handle it. Repeat after me. Pepitone. Pepitone. Or should it be pepitone? Ah, <laughs> uh, there, there you go. You're putting the right emphasis on it because it's, it is a Japanese word, but you got to put some Italian in it. And you did, a, you did an excellent job there, Jackie Micucci. You're very welcome. I've been now, around a number of people with Italian accents in my life. Pepitone sounds Italian, right? But it's a Japanese word. I'm not going to give you the English translation just yet of this very Italian sounding word because this is where we're going to go deep tonight. 
But I will tell you that the etymology of the word comes from baseball, from none other than Joe Pepitone. How did Joe Pepitone, a New York Yankee of modest talent, a wild living party boy, how did he enter the Japanese language? He obviously made an impact on Larry David if the name Joe Pepitone is buzzing mildly in your non-baseball lobes, because that's the player that Kramer beamed at baseball fantasy camp on an episode of Seinfeld, which led to the situation where Kramer ended up fighting Mickey Mantle. That's right. And apparently Moose Scarin as well. (laughs) He was also involved. But yeah, Joe Pepitone features quite a bit in Seinfeld. George Costanza at one point suggests that there be a Joe Pepitone day, which obviously is never going to happen in Japan. But more, <laughs> more famously, there is an episode where Kramer is giving a tour of Central Park in one of the handsome cabs, which is a horse-drawn carriage. If you don't know what a handsome cab is that they have in New York. And he points to the park, the surrounding park, and he says that it was designed in 1850 by Joe Pepitone, built during the Civil War so the Northern armies could practice fighting on grass. (laughs) (laughs) Not true, if only. (laughs) Not not true, but, but fantastic. The two Seinfeld characters that you've cited... Probably, if you smushed them together, you might get Joe Pepitone between Kramer and George Costanza. A little bit of a deadbeat, a little bit of a weirdo. I'm going to take you deep, and my apologies in advance, because I feel like I went through hell researching this. (laughs) I'm going to take you with me. I have been reading a couple books from the 70s. One is Sublime, and the other, Utterly Ridiculous. The first book, the Sublime one, is Robert Whiting's The Chrysanthemum and the Bat. It's a really amazing book. Robert Whiting is the first American author to write about Japanese baseball. This book dates back to the 70s, so it's a little bit out of date. A lot of the teams have changed names or they've reconfigured, but still a fascinating read. I really enjoyed it. So that's the sublime. The ridiculous is Joe Pepitone's own autobiography. (laughs) Did you finish it? Did you read the whole thing? I'm just curious. Oh, I, no, I, I couldn't. Okay. I couldn't I couldn't do it because it, it's terrible and it's offensive. And I do believe that he may have written it. That he himself wrote <laughs> that it. He, that there was that no he, ghost writer. Okay. That he himself wrote it because if I were teaching fifth grade English, I would have sent it back all marked up. Wow. Joe's <laughs> autobiography is titled, Joe, You Could Have Made Us Proud. I'm going to read you some excerpts from both of these books. Again, apologies, but it's going to be a real treat. Okay. First, a little background on Joe Pepitone, besides the very helpful background that you gave. Thank you. I mean, I mean it's, everything relates back to Seinfeld, and you know, you're iconic if you end up being mentioned in a Seinfeld episode. So there you and, go. And that many times. Yeah, I, I think he is clearly one of Larry David's top muses. For sure. And I'm not sure what's wrong with Larry David at this point, crypto commercials notwithstanding. Ooh. Well, first, a little background on Joe Pepitone. We Obviously, you can tell if you're listening to this that he is the butt of jokes, object of derision, blah, blah, blah. He is kind of a hot mess. From sea to shining sea, though, like in Japan and the States, he's just a hot mess wherever he is. That is true. That is true. And we're going to... We're going to get to some hot messes as we go along here. 
Well, Joe Pepitone had decent power, decent average. He was fine. He could have been a good player if mm-hmm. he put his mind to it, if he had some discipline. He could have made us proud, Jackie. He could have made us proud. But he didn't. But he didn't. He never really achieved breakout status. And there's a lot of room in baseball for pretty good players, as we know. Every team needs, I don't know, about 15 pretty good players on their 25-man roster. Right. Not everyone can beat Ichiro Amatsui. Yeah. If So if they do the work, good, good for them. But Joe Pepitone was clearly easily distracted. He seemed to get in all sorts of trouble on the field and off the field. In fact, if you read his biography, it's mostly about Joe Pepitone getting in fights with teammates or with opposing team members or with his coaches or with his family. This guy was fighting everybody. Kramer, too, I guess. I guess so. Yeah, he was fighting Kramer at the fantasy camp. And I think all that punching might keep you from focusing on baseball just a little bit. In less than 10 years from his Major League debut, his skills were diminishing pretty rapidly. In fact, by the time he played for the Cubs in 1972, which was about his 10th year in in baseball, he quit. He just quit. And then in George Costanza fashion, he then unquit. (laughs) Came back. I don't know. So he quit, but he didn't retire. He quit like he didn't say... you know, because normally when you quit baseball, you officially retire. So he just quit the game and didn't say he was retiring from the game. I guess he quit his team, which was the Cubs. But then I think he, I don't think he suited up and then just came back to the ballpark. I think he okay. maybe had to beg and plead a little bit. If we want to spend more time on the Joe Pepitone story, and we we might, if I can bring myself to actually read the whole autobiography, I do know that he owed a lot of people a lot of money in the early 70s. Shocking. Yes. <laughs> I suspect that inspired him to unquit baseball. So that was in 1972. By 1973, pretty much nobody wanted him. Joe was looking for a job. He ended up getting recruited by the Yakult Adams. The Adams are now known as the Swallows, which is one of my favorite teams in Japan. Probably it is my favorite team. They're a spectacular team to watch. And that is the team that played at Meiji Jingu Stadium, mm-hmm. the stadium we mentioned earlier that Babe Ruth has played at in exhibition games in the 30s. Joe didn't want to do it, but he got talked into it. Well, the money talked, and mm-hmm. I think that that was what mostly convinced him. I want to read a quote <laughs> from, from Joe's grandpa, Vincent Cayazzo. Man, now you got to do a little vocabulary lesson for it. How, how'd I do on that? Cayazzo. 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 Vinny. Grandpa Vinny. So Grandpa Vinny was 90 years old when Joe got recruited to go play in Japan. And he gave Joe a little bit of advice. He said, and this is verbatim. I know it's going to sound like I'm making fun of ethnic stereotypes, but I'm quoting exactly from Joe's book. All right. We won't come and hit you upside the head. Grandpa Vincent said, I wish you show all the bums that's here, the Yankees and all of them, that you great and that you should be play in this country. That is a direct quote. All right. Well, I mean, it was kind of sweet. He believed in his grandson. Yeah. I do sort of just picture like this old guy in a easy chair, just sitting there wagging his finger at Joe and his bushy sideburns. But he had one more thing that he wanted to get off his chest. He told Joe, the second thing I want to tell you is to take these, at which point he handed me two dimes. Before you go to Japan, I want you to go down to the butcher shop 
and buy yourself two pounds of brains and put them in your head. (laughs) (laughs) Grandpa knows best. Those are the immortal words of 90-year-old Grandpa Vincent Cayazzo, Joe Papatone's grandpa. Wow. All right, I'm going to compose myself because I'm going to read you some quotes from Robert Whiting's book. Robert Whiting is a refreshing voice of reason after where we've come this far. This is what Robert Whiting wrote about Joe Pepitone in 1975. So this would be after Joe's tenure in Japan. A couple of years after he played there, Joe Pepitone stands alone. During his brief stay in Japan, the former New York Yankee All-Star first baseman managed to generate more controversy and arouse the ire of more people than any American player before or since. The Adams paid him $70,000. They also had to pay $70,000 to the Atlanta Braves, who technically still had Pepitone under contract. And they had to fire their star hitter, Dave Roberts. Not that Dave Roberts, the oh, manager the manager of the, the Dodgers. There was a another American player named Dave Roberts who was a league leader in batting average in Japan. And he could also speak Japanese, the perfect player, but they canned him to make room for Joe Pepitone. And I'm sure Joe spoke fluent Japanese. I'm sure he learned lots of choice phrases. If you've ever seen someone pretending to be Japanese in an old movie or TV show and it just gives you super cringe, that's how Joe talked in his book Oh, when he dear. was pretending to be Japanese. It's worse than Mickey oh. Rooney at Breakfast at Tiffany. Oh, wow, wow. Well, that's pretty bad. So one of the most beloved American players to play in Japan got canned to make room for Joe Pepitone. The Adams ultimately spent $140,000 to either pay Joe or get him out of his Braves contract. And that's roughly a million dollars today. That seems like chicken feed compared to what a lot of players are getting now. But in mm-hmm. 1973, Joe would have been one of the top paid players. He out-earned Reggie Jackson and Rod Carew in 1973 because of this. Whoa! Whoa! I know, right? Would you rather have on your team of those three? I can tell you who I don't want on my team. (laughs) And I'm going to read some more from his book. Oh, dear. (laughs) Because I, I want to talk about Joe's first day because I do not want to be a NC-17 Thing. I'm not going to. Not you're going to. You're going to censor yourself. You can, you know, use bleeping this if you if you so need. The Yakult Adams were owned by a company that made an orange drink that tasted like the cream sickles that I used to eat as a kid. Thick and sweet. I drank one and it made me so thirsty that I just had to have another. He's talking about the Yakult. It's a probiotic drink. It's a yogurt drink. You are correct. It is a probiotic drink. The recommended dosage for an adult is two drinks per day. Well, here's what Joe said. While I changed into my baseball uniform, I drank six of those insidious orange drinks. When the game started, I felt rumblings in my stomach. Mm-hmm. I know we are fond of the George Brett story. We are. We have not talked about the George Brett we, story we, on we the have, podcast. We have not, and I feel like the lawyers will still come after us for that one. So just Google George Brett Seafood Buffet Proceed with caution, for God's sake. He's good for at least once a year. I think this part, and I'm just guessing, and again, if I was a fifth grade teacher and I would send this manuscript back to the author, I think this might have been an embellishment. But apparently, 
at the first game of the season for the Yakult Adams, this was the first time that Joe had to use the bathroom in Tokyo. Weird. Did he hold it in for the first, I don't know, a couple of days? Like, I would assume he didn't, like, just arrive and then play. I would assume so, too. But this is why I suspect it's an embellishment, because this is apparently how Joe learned that there were no Western toilets at the ballpark. Mm -hmm. Squatty potty. He had to squat over a hole to get the job done. So Joe got the runs, and honestly, (laughs) that's the most runs he had as a member of the Occult Adams. Oh, But true. Yeah, (laughs) accurate. He got his uniform dirty, and he told his interpreter to go tell the manager that he was going to miss the rest of the game. His first game! There you go! Because he had mm -mm, all over his uniform. Yes. Clearly, he was off to a fantastic start. He did manage to get a spare pair of pants and made it back to play first base that day. Well, that's good. This is a good time to remind you that these excerpts are from a book named Joe, You Could Have Made Us Proud. (laughs) Yeah, Joe, I take it he did not take those two dimes that his grandfather offered him to buy him some brains because he wouldn't have been downing uh, yogurt drinks (laughs) like they were candy. I suspect he might have just eaten two pounds of raw brains and then see how that works for his uniform. Joe Pepitone managed to play 14 games for the Occult Adams. And I will just remind you, they paid him, the, the Adams paid out the equivalent of a million dollars in today's money to secure the services of this. I guess he was an all-star, but 14 whole games for roughly a million dollars. Let's go back to Robert Whiting. All Pepitone produced was a giant headache. After appearing in 14 games, batting 163 and hitting one home run, He arrived at the park one day for a doubleheader and announced he could not play. It seems the doorway of his apartment was too low. And every time he went in and out, he hit his head. Oh, dear God. Could he not duck? Does he not know how to duck? I mean, he's an (laughs) athlete. He should have, you know, good reflexes. If they make a movie of Joe, you could have made us proud. I hope that Hanna-Barbera animates it. And it's just him literally walking through a door, hitting his head, walking through a door, hitting his head over and over to save money on animation. Wow. He suffered severe headaches and blurred vision. (laughs) I mean, how hard was he hitting his head on these doorways? Dear God. (laughs) This man was making more money than Rod Carew and Reggie Jackson. This is sadly an audio-only podcast because there's air quotes thrown up. There's rolling eyes on both sides of the microphone here. There's clearly a great deal of skepticism in Robert Whiting's tone as well. Pepitone in his infinite wisdom, went back to the United States after 14 of these games because he decided he needed to go attend his divorce hearings. Had to go to Reno? Is that where this was happening? Probably something like that. It's 1973, right? Right, so that's my guess. Even though he was told he did not need to attend in person. So he bugged out, left the country after 14 games. But he came back, and now he said his ankle was bothering him. Was there like a step that he couldn't get up, so he kept hitting his ankle on it or something? I'm speculating this might be an embellishment on my part that he was doing handstands so as to not hit his head on the door, but that he would get his ankles caught on the low door frames. That seems very athletic for him, though. There was actually a headline in a Tokyo sports paper where the headline just simply read, Pepitone Sabotage. <laughs> I want a t-shirt of this because I can't think of a more perfect combination of words. Pepitone Sabotage. The story suggested that maybe he was doing this on purpose. That actually should have been the, the title of his autobiography, <laughs> Pepitone Sabotage. That's the name of my hardcore band. 
Do you think he was doing that on purpose? I don't know. Yeah. Well, three different doctors in Tokyo could find nothing wrong with him. But during the same period of time, he was spotted on numerous occasions at Byblos, one of Tokyo's liveliest discotheques. Was he wearing the hairpiece? Did he have the hairpiece at that point? I believe he did pack the hairpieces. Okay. Yeah, we'll try to put up a Joe Pepitone photo gallery. I mean, when you think of bad hairpiece, especially in that period of time, Joe Pepitone is like the dictionary definition of bad hairpiece. Yes, and he had different hairpieces for different occasions. He actually had a gamer piece, and then he had a nightclub piece, and probably a waterbed piece in 1973, right? At the disco, he was dancing away on his injured leg until the wee hours of the morning. So the Adams decided to hire a private investigator. Once Joe realized he was being tailed, he developed a limp. Oh, someone's looking at me. I must... Wait, which which leg was it again? Which (laughs) angle? Exactly. When he realized that wasn't enough, because the limp seemed to disappear at night with a dose of disco, Mm -hmm. he then got somebody to put a cast on his leg so he wouldn't have to play. Oh, dear God. Wow. And and by the way, I know we say that we're not doing stats on this podcast, but I I do want to say one critical stat. He's still at 14 games played. He has not progressed past that. Past 14 games. Let's see. Severe runs hitting his head, headaches and blurred visions, uh, ankle injury and a limp. So I think he had almost everything that could go wrong, right? He did what anyone else that's faking a number of injuries would do. With a month left to go in the season, he just went home. Sure. He just packed up his balling glove and went home. In Tokyo, he was rooming with Cleet Boyer, Mm -hmm. another former Yankee of some renown. I think Cleet Boyer was a pretty legit player. He stuck Cleet Boyer with a $1,500 phone bill and a grocery bill of over $1,000. He ended up stiffing his friend and his roommate and former teammate for about $20,000 in modern money. Which is funny because Joe said that he hated all of the food and he hated every minute he spent in Tokyo except for the discos. Right. So he hated all the food, but, you know, he seemed to still spend an awful lot of money on food. What happened to Joe Pepitone? When he left Tokyo for the last time, he was done as a big leaguer. He never played in MLB or in Japan again. That's not much of a shocker. He returned to the Yankees as a hitting coach. Not really sure how that went. That was sometime in the 70s or early 80s, and the Yankees were hitting pretty well. They probably didn't need a hitting coach. Um, You can argue that the hitting coach, depending on who you are, a lot of people argue the hitting coach is useless anyway, especially in this day and age. But it seems like a nice kind of patch on the head. Hey, you can be a coach kind of thing, even though we don't need you. He could have made us proud, Jackie. He could have made us proud. That's all I'm saying. Obviously, he served as a muse to Larry David, as we discussed earlier, but he also found himself in a lot of legal trouble. Really? A man who kept stiff, like who, you know, basically walked out on his contract, stiffed his friend with grocery bills and what have you. He ended up in a lot of legal trouble. That's shocking. He also ran a bar in Chicago called Joe Pepitone's Thing, which I think might merit its own episode. I just love the fact that there was a bar called Joe Pepitone's Thing. Thang? That would be Joe Pepitone's Thang. So when Joe returned to the States, he did get a job. According to his biography, he made $26,000 a year to work at the Playboy Club as a host. seems about right. As a host at his choice of the New York Club or the Chicago Club. So he like shuttled between the two? Is that what you're saying? That he, depending on, or did he have to pick one? 
I, I think he was able to choose and I think okay. he was able to float. And my guess is that at some point he had to get out of Chicago and maybe lie low in New York and then probably vice versa okay. would be would be my guess. I wasn't even going to bring this up, but after he got this job in his autobiography, he mentioned that he preferred working as a host at the Playboy Club as opposed to playing in Japan. But then he started grousing about baseball in general. He says, I love baseball and I hate to see what it's doing to itself. There's so much dead time in it that it's the most boring sport in the world to watch. What a crab apple, right? Mr. Bitterness. I mean, we also say the same thing, but no one's paid us (laughs) to go do something. And then we didn't do it. Well, I mean, the thing is, is, you know, this is how he made his career. This is why he's working at the Playboy Club. No one would be giving him the time of day if he hadn't been a ball player. So to take a dump all over the game, I mean, come on. It's on brand. Nothing like an entitled whiner that got any number of breaks in his life. He even got two dimes from his grandpa, and I don't think he used those wisely. I want to go back to this vocabulary lesson. I want to... Fulfill promises. I want to live up to expectations. I want to do things that Joe Pepitone didn't do because, Jackie, I can make you proud. Oh, I know you can. So let's talk about old Joe's legacy in Japan. 14 whole games, but he left a legacy. Imagine that. This is what Robert Whiting wrote about it. Since the Pepitone fiasco in 1973, however, many Japanese teams have begun to conduct background character investigations of potential foreign recruits. And by the mid-1970s, advice to those players who wished to avoid the ugly American tag was given to every player that came over, not even just for the Adams, but literally every team. In fact, Cleet Boyer, the guy who got stuck with Joe's phone bills, was used as a role model because he ended up being one of the favorite American players to ever play in Japan. Managers would tell their players, be like Cleet Boyer. Boyer-san is like a samurai, and the way he treats other players... He takes them out in the evening. He looks after them. He coaches them. He must get very tired. Joe's legacy is twofold here. Obviously, part of the legacy is do the opposite of what Joe Pepitone did. Yep. But the final word comes from Robert Whiting on his true legacy. After the initial outrage wore off, Pepitone became a standing joke in Japan. An office worker who fouled up a job, for example, would be dubbed a Pepitone until he redeemed himself. So yeah, a pepitone. A pepitone. I think it's good. We should use it. I think we're going to incorporate this into the bad hops vocabulary officially. Don't be a pepitone. This whole thing is what made me go down this rabbit hole of the Joe Pepitone story, because I saw something that suggested that pepitone was a dismissive term in the Japanese language. And I thought, okay, this is like one of these like internet goof-offs, like making up something on a Reddit thread and it's like put it on a Wikipedia page and modern truth, right? I hoped it was true. I wanted it to be true. So I checked with Trevor Raichura at japanball.com, which is a great resource, a lot of great information about what's going on in the Japanese pro leagues right now. If you want to follow teams like the Yakult Swallows or the Hiroshima Carp or you name it. They also are the agency that can get you tickets to go to games in Japan. That's who we use. Trevor helped me track down the Robert Whiting book. It was a treat. Through this book and through Trevor checking around with his sources in Japan, he was able to confirm that this wasn't just wishful thinking that one person kind of goofed around and said, oh, yeah, that guy's a real pepitone. So Joe was notorious enough back in the day that he's now kind of immortal in a weird way. 
So he left a legacy of sorts. I mean, not a particularly good legacy, but a legacy, you know, thanks to him, the Japanese now, I would assume now it's probably a lot easier to know um, what players you're getting in Japan, a lot easier to do background checks with social media, but he provided a service by being a total and complete, you know, jackwad. We are heading back into the ballpark in Japan. Mark, we get to spend, not to our humble brag, not to bring it up again, but we got to spend some time at uh, some games in, in Tokyo. It's definitely an experience. It's definitely a lot of fun. It, the traditions, it, it, it's interesting because, you know, you're play, you know the game. Like, we know the game. We know how it's played. We know the rules. But it's a little different. I mean, I really enjoyed it. I really enjoyed some of the, the differences, especially around the game itself, how, how the fans the way people react, some of the things that they have at the park itself. So what were some of the things that you enjoyed? And I'll jump into some of the things that I too enjoyed at uh, games in Japan. Well, the first time that I went to a game and I got tickets and I was shocked that I was able to sit three rows behind the dugout for a game because I quickly learned that those aren't the desired tickets. The most desirable tickets are in the left field cheering section or the right field cheering section. And they are very carefully assigned to the supporters of the proper team. One team gets left field, the other team gets right field. So very much like a soccer match where you have cheering sections for the various squads that are playing. I know that some soccer fans, Sounders fans with their giant banners and Timbers fans with even bigger banners kind of going nuts and they got their cheers and things like that. But my goodness, the cheering sections are anarchy and discipline all kind of contained in a probably a 3000 seat sector of the stadium, because when it's your turn to go nuts. There's a guy out there with a trombone playing a song. Each hitter gets a special chant that the whole section is like clapping their hands and slapping their thighs and yelling. And then when their team is no longer at bat, dead silence. Yeah. Out of, out of respect. Yeah, I think we both enjoy the cheering. I enjoy that when you go to the Swallows games, when one of their players hits a home run, they have those little umbrellas that they all open up after a big home run. I thought that was a lot of fun. It did remind me a lot. It was a lot like watching a soccer match where there's cheering, there are songs, there are specific sections. Uh, they don't have giant TIFO like they have in, at soccer matches, but they're very close. And I just really enjoyed that they all have a different, they have different traditions that they do during, during the game. And it's mostly when their teams are at bat, they get quiet when their teams are pitching in the home park, but it's mostly when their teams are at bat and there's, it's, you know, it's a party and they like, everyone's into it. Everybody knows the songs. Everybody knows what to do when it was very cool. I liked it quite a bit. If something good happens for your team, you cheer and you still make noise. And my goodness, those folks are so engaged and they're mm -hmm. watching that game like like hawks. They are into it. I enjoyed it. Um, didn't see any beach balls. No beach balls. No beach balls. I didn't, I didn't see any objects on field. No, no objects on field. Check gonna, out that episode. We're going to call, call back every episode. That's, that's right. That's the Bad Hops podcast available wherever podcasts are Our podcasted. Podcast one of my other favorite things about the Japanese ballpark experience are the Ghostbusters. There are young women wearing kind of adorable kawaii outfits 
walking around with pony kegs strapped to their back, pouring fresh beer out of a keg. And sometimes whiskey, because your wife and I got whiskey. Sometimes whiskey, sometimes, uh, yes, highballs with nice big ice cubes and, and things like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I looked up the price. It's gone up a little bit since the last time we were there. 750 yen for a, an ice cold beer out of a keg, which translates to about $7 for a beer. I defy you to buy a $7 beer at a ballpark in America unless you are sharing it with someone. <laughs> that is, it is very hard to find $7 beers at ballparks in general. Although they do, sometimes they do like $5 specials, but not easy to find. I, I mean, yeah. not easy to find. The Ghostbuster girls are adorable, and I call them. I'm not the only one that calls them Ghostbusters, but they do no. have their packs on the back. They 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 don't cross the streams of beer because that would just make a mess. Essentially, well, there'd be no beer left. <laughs> that's also true. There are a few women out there that I feel like the keg might weigh as much as they do. These are some very like adorably petite women, and they look like they could be Harajuku girls, essentially. I think, And I think many of them are. That might be how they're funding their fast fashion delights. But they're not scantily clad, which is also, there is there is modesty going on. It's not like, you know, it's not like going to a bikini barista. That's true. Only in America, folks. What did you take away from your, your time? So we've been to the Tokyo Dome, and we mm-hmm. have been to Meiji Jingu Stadium. I am... I am more excited about going to every ballpark in Japan than I am every ballpark in America at this point. Honestly, uh, why not both? That's how I feel. Uh, but yeah, I what I liked about it too is I liked that. I mean, and this is very Japanese. So people, when you go to a ballpark in the States, people just throw their crap everywhere, right? You have a bag of peanuts, they throw it on the floor, you eat something, it's under your seat, it's like you're stepping on it. They actually walk up and down the aisles. There's someone who works at the ballpark. It's almost like when you're on a plane and people pass their garbage and they put it into, you know, into the big bin as it goes up and down to keep the ballpark nice and clean. And honestly, I like that. I think it's a nice thing to do instead of throwing your crap everywhere. I think it's a, it's a nice little bit of community. I know it sounds, you know, it's not the main thing going on at the ballpark that I enjoyed, but it was just kind just a little bit of a, a, a peek into, you know, Japanese way of thinking, Japanese culture. Have pride in your team. Have pride in your stadium. Keep it clean. Well, again, it's the anarchy and discipline. It's not that these people are sitting politely and picking up after themselves for the whole game because they're going nuts when good things happen. They get those umbrellas out at, at Swallows games. If there's a home run, you make a lot of noise. You jump up and down. But then you also respect your surroundings and you clean up afterwards. I will just strongly suggest if you can ever find yourself in Japan, even if you're not a huge baseball fan, I'm not sure who I'm talking to now because you're listening to a baseball <laughs> podcast. Maybe you're overhearing it. Someone someone at the car next to you is playing it very loudly. Tell them to turn it up a little bit more. Go to a game in Japan. Even if you're not a huge baseball head, it is Or such if you don't know the teams. If you don't know yeah. the teams. Like, pick a team. Like, it doesn't matter if you don't know the teams. And there's, there's a chance you're going to encounter an American on one of the teams anyway, because there are Americans who extend their careers by going to Japan. But it's just fun. It's If you like baseball, if you enjoy baseball, it's just fun to see how it's played in different parts of the world. Get yourself a $7 beer and some takoyaki. Just lean into it. We are on the subject of exchange students. We've had the best of times and the worst of times so far. I think Ichiro, Matsui, 
Otani qualifies the best of times. I don't even need to tell you who represents the worst of times. We're going to talk about a couple other folks that have played in Japan. Some unlikely characters. So Jackie, you've got, got one for us. I do. And I wouldn't say this is the best of times or the worst of times. This was kind of just a, a little a, a little interesting point in time. So I wanted to talk a little bit about Manny Ramirez. You know him as a very famous uh, outfielder on the Boston Red Sox. But Manny actually spent some time in Japan. Not a ton of time, but a little bit of time. And did you know, Mark, while I was looking this up, Manny had retired from baseball, from Major League Baseball. I think it was in twenty in twenty ten after he got suspended for <laughs> PEDs yet again. He was playing for the Rays. He tested positive. He was going to have to serve a hundred game suspension, and he was just like, you know what? I'm done. I'm not going to play baseball anymore. Very Manny Ramirez. He kind of yeah, he kind of pepitoned it. Honestly, he totally he, he, he quit. Yep. But now you're saying that he unquit, sort of. He did. He unquit. He decided in uh, 2017, at the age of 44, he signed a contract with the Kochi Island Fighting Dogs, and they are a team in the independent Shikoku Island League in Japan. So he signed a deal with them, and he did play. He played for he played for a while. He played, I think, until he got injured. He played, uh, I think, until August of that year. He was fairly good. I couldn't find stats for him. I was just curious what his batting average was. But there were some stories about him hitting home runs and being a fan favorite. What I found interesting was that Manny had a couple or a few stipulations in his contract when he went over to Japan. And there were a number of articles written about it too, kind of like almost like positioning him as a diva. But I will say, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you what these are. And you, you let me Wait, know. You, you, Jackie Mikuchi, you're going to stick up for Manny Ramirez. I am going to stick up for Manny Ramirez. I know. Imagine that. Wow, mind blown. I know it should be, but I, you know, I always did as much as I hate the Boston Red Sox. I always did enjoy Manny as just a personality because he was Manny being Manny, right? You don't see a lot of that kind of personality any for good or for bad in baseball anymore. People who are just, this is who I am. I'm a great player. I'm going to do whatever the heck I want. So when Manny went over to Japan and he had this, this contract, here are a couple of the stipulations in it. He wanted a, he had a Mercedes with a personal chauffeur. Okay. All right. I don't think that's, that's unreasonable. He doesn't know his way around Japan. Japan, in case you've never been there, they, much like England, they drive on the wrong side of the road. So I could see where that would be tricky. And also they don't have street numbers. As I've learned the hard way, trying to find literally anything in Japan, you have to find their sector code. So yeah, I would, I would have a driver taking me around too. Yeah. It's a totally okay. Totally I'm, so, okay. I'm I mean, gonna you know, back I, you up. I'm gonna yeah, back you up on the Manny so far. You know, Mercedes, he deserves to be in style, you know. Played, oh, yeah. played a long storied career. So, you know, he's not gonna drive around in a Hyundai or whatever. Another stipulation in, in that contract was his own hotel suite on team road trips. So I okay. guess he's a big star, big famous player. He didn't want to be bunking with three other guys in a in a days in and Hokkaido or wherever they were <laughs> playing. So yeah, so that was another stipulation he had. You reach a certain point in your life when you once you stop rooming with someone or crashing on someone's couch, you just you don't go back to that. No, nah, so, you really that's okay. You re- you really can't. I'm uh, so far. I'm agreeing with Manny on this. Okay, I, know. I would totally have this stipulation in my contract: unlimited sushi all season long. Hell yeah! 
right? But I don't know where the sushi was from, right? Because, you know, there's good sushi and there's bad sushi. And it's hard to have bad sushi in Japan, but I know there are definitely degrees of it. But yeah, unlimited sushi. I've seen you eat sushi from a convenience store in Japan. (laughs) And you were like, this is so good. And then I ate some, I'm like, oh yeah, it's really good. So yeah, I think uh, even if it was from Family Mart, he'd be fine. But I bet it's it's a higher grade than that. Another stipulation was optional practices. At 44 years old, he probably only, and as, because he didn't finish this, his year in Japan because of a knee injury, I could see why he didn't want to play too much because he was 44, kind of brilliant. And then the final stipulation he had was on the back of his jersey, he just wanted it to say Manny. I mean, I don't see why not, right? It's like Ichiro being Ichiro, right? Like, He's Manny. That's well, right, because very few players today have a catchphrase, and Manny being Manny is kind of an immortal catchphrase. Yeah. If we're talking about Pepitone entering the Japanese language, Manny being Manny is a certainly entered the the English language or these the sports vernacular for quite some time too. I'm going to allow I, all of these things. Yeah, I mean, honestly, it was funny because the articles, and here I am defending Manny Ramirez, right? Uh, but the articles were like, oh, can you can you believe this? Look at what he, what he stipulated in his contract. It's like, hey, I'm sure this is better than some of those, uh, some of the bands stipulate when they go to play at big arenas. I'm sure this is, this is nothing. This writer is probably like kind of like listening to his tummy rumble when he finds out that somebody else gets unlimited sushi and he's like, I'm just going to have like a, a protein bar. Exactly. I've got one for you as well. Okay. You know, we pride ourselves on taking deep dives here, but my goodness, this deep dive that I took, well, I think it literally did go into the sewer at one point after six occult probiotic drinks. <laughs> don't down occult probiotic drinks like they're candy. Just yeah, don't. Like they cream, are good. Like creamsicles. Like creamsicles. I don't, mean, yeah, don't, eat, don't eat six creamsicles either. I'm just going to say don't ooh. really eat six of anything. Don't. I mean, honestly, I know they're little, so I get it. Like they are little, but they pack yeah. a punch, apparently. Just pack ask a, Joe Pepitone. Pack a big punch, a big outbound punch. <laughs> Felt a little bit filthy after reading the Joe Pepitone story and just kind of putting up a little lot of like homophobic, xenophobic, racist stuff that he put in his own book, which I will remind you, it was titled Joe, You Could Have Made Us Proud. So I wanted to cleanse the palate and purge the Pepitone out of my mind. I dug around to see who else made the trip from America to Japan. And we recently did a couple of episodes about Effa Manley, the first woman in the Baseball Hall of Fame, and we learned about Edith Houghton, who at the age of 13 traveled to Japan in 1925 to play exhibition games with her all-female team, the Philadelphia Bobbies. Catch that episode, you can hear more about Edith. I can't confirm it, but I bet Edith Houghton, at the age of 13, played more games in Japan than Joe Pepitone did. Remember, it's a low benchmark, 14 games. But the story that really blew me away... Did you know that there was a black player from America that came to play in Japan in 1936? I did not, but I am not surprised having now done all that research on the Negro Leagues that there were black players in Japan. There weren't many, but Jimmy Bonner was the first, and he played in Japan 11 years before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier here in the United States. Jimmy Bonner, who was known as Jimmy Bonner, in Japan, a little bit of linguistic smoothing over of his name, went Bana. from pl- Bana, Jimmy Bana, 
went from playing in the independent pro ball in the U.S. on all black teams since we're, we were still in the segregation era here. And then he ended up pitching for Dai Tokyo in the inaugural season of the Japanese Professional Baseball League, which was the first pro league in Japan. This opened up a whole good can of worms in my mind because I just can't imagine a black player in Tokyo in 1936, before World War II, when Japan wasn't exactly the most open country to foreigners. So it boggles my mind to think he was there. He was paid 400 yen per month, so about $115, which doesn't sound like a lot, was less than what MLB players were making at that point, but on a par with most Negro League players back home. So it was a pretty good deal. Unfortunately, Jimmy did not make much of a name for himself. He only played for a few months. He struggled as a pitcher, which was his natural position, but he was a decent hitter. But you know what? Anybody that's a pioneer, anybody that breaks through is a hero to me. And I'm impressed this happened. So yeah, Jimmy Bonner, 1936, the first black player to play in Japan. Very cool. Before we wrap up, I do want to once again shout out japanball.com because they were very helpful in giving me information and they turned me on to Robert Whiting's book, The Chrysanthemum and the Bat. Which you needed that palate cleanser after Joe Pepitone's book. You know what I needed? I needed facts. Or or you needed a a little Yakult drink. Just to to clear it all out. My palate needed cleansing. The rest of me is fine. Thank you very much. Thanks for asking. TMI. Japan Ball hooked us up with tickets when we went to games in Japan, but they also have a, a lot of great resources like online chats with guests from Japan and the United States. They hosted a viewing of Koshin, the high school tournament documentary about high school baseball in Japan, which is totally worth watching. Excellent. It's it actually Shohei Otani was on the team that is featured in the in the documentary. It's essentially the Friday night lights of Japanese baseball. And I think yeah. the Japanese high school baseball tournament might be bigger than high school football in Texas, which is really saying something. It might. I mean, if you saw the grooming for it, it's it's definitely right up there, if not bigger. Check out that documentary. That's the super cool one. Japan Ball also hosted a, a chat session with with Kim Ang, the general manager of the Miami Marlins, who's featured in our Women in Baseball episode. That's right. And she gave, I felt like, a lot of access to people that just tuned in and wanted to ask questions about her breakthrough. This was before uh, Marlins had played any games that I attended the chat session, but she was very kind to give everybody 90 minutes of her time and to talk baseball and talk about her passion for the game. I think more importantly than anything, they helped me crack the case of did Pepitone really enter the Japanese language? So thanks to Trevor and everyone at japanball.com. The fans are heading home. The grounds crew is on the field and we will see you next time at the ballpark. That's our pal Ron Lewis on the stadium organ. I'm Mark Butler. And I'm Jackie Mikuchi. And this was Bad Hops. Any rebroadcast, retransmission, or account of this podcast without the express written consent of Bad Hops is prohibited. Unless you like us, review us, or subscribe to Bad Hops. Find us at at Bad Hops Podcast on Instagram and everywhere else. Don't be a Pepitone. Don't be a Pepitone.